Hello, I'm Kimberly Dondo, Digital Content Manager, and welcome to In Conversation With, the podcast series that delves into the world of financial services and brings you face-to-face with some of the most notable figures in the industry. Listen as we discuss topics that are currently facing the industry and hear from visionary CEOs to disruptive innovators as we bring you a diverse array of voices and perspectives. We'll explore the challenges they faced, the lessons they've learned, and the insights they have to share about the ever-evolving landscape of financial services. I'm Lois Valley, Chief Reporter for Money Marketing, and I am joined by Heather Hopkins from Next Wealth and Gillian Hepburn from Schroeder's. Hi, both. Hi, great to be here. Hi, Thank, you. Thank you so much for joining me. I um, hope you're both well. Maybe you could start off just by introducing yourselves and um, telling our listeners a bit about where you, how you got to where you are today. Um, as I introduced you first, Heather, maybe you go first. Yeah, sure. Um, so I am the founder and managing director of Next Wealth. Set up the business five years ago. Um, it's a research firm to look at advisor business models, investment propositions, and technology solutions because there's so much change happening in the financial advice market that for a market researcher, it's a fascinating place to look. In terms of how I got here, it was a bit of a circuitous path, um, but I was head of platform before um, and started in market research in politics and then financial services. Um, But I did a talk at a school yesterday and explained it's not a career path. It's a really winding road with lots of false starts. Julian, <laughs> I'm just laughing because yeah, it is a winding, it is a winding path actually. Um, and and I could be here all day because um, I am celebrating my 35th year in the industry, um, which is when I like to say that I started when I was five, but that joke's wearing really thin now. Um, so you know, I I run the uh, solutions business for intermediaries at, at Schroders, um, and that looks after. All of um, you know, model portfolios, multi-asset funds, where advisors actually want to partner with somebody for some or all of their investment proposition. And what's really important to me about that is also about the service that we wrap around that. Um, but going back 35 years ago, I joined, um, I guess, by accident rather than by design, if I could be really honest. Um, I had two years as a temp at Standard Life when it was called Standard Life, I think. Um, and um, and then fell into their graduate programme when I decided that being a teacher and having completed an English degree wasn't the route that I wanted to take. So that was the first part of my winding journey. <laughs> Ended up in the, a completely different place. Um, so I spent many, many years there, a whole range of opportunities, working right across lots of different divisions, which was great fun. And you just learned loads, actually. Um, and then I did a spell consulting for myself, which was always interesting. Again, like Heather, you know, false starts and lots of learns. And um, and that was great because I just consulted right across the industry, you know, platforms, asset managers, discretion managers, um, basically anybody that would pay me for doing a job. And, um, and then I joined Schroeder's uh, just over four years ago now. Great. Thank you both. Um, so... It sounds like you're both very well placed to talk to me today about because I know that um, Schroeder's and Next Wealth have both had research out fairly recently. Um, so I'm interested to hear from your perspective, what are some of the biggest challenges facing financial advisors today? Um, I don't mind who goes first. Maybe we go Heather as you started first. 
Yeah, sure. So I think I think the biggest challenge facing advisors now is just the volume of client work. And it's interesting because I was talking to an advisor yesterday from sort of a mid-sized firm, and he said that they're just swamped with client work. And I said, is that is that clients? asking for help because of inflation, cost of living, mortgage rates, all sorts of stuff in the news. And he said, not at all. It's it's the review meetings, the MIFID to review meetings and preparation for consumer duty, um, fair value assessments, and just the amount of information that has to be collected to report to clients and to report to the regulator is overwhelming them. And, and, and I think that's a huge challenge for advisors because it's driving up cost, it's increasing inefficiency in their business. It means that they have to think differently about the types of clients that they can work with. And I think it's a challenge for advisors, but it's also a huge challenge for our industry because if we want to widen access to advice, because I think the three of us all, you know, and probably most of your listeners share a view that's well evidenced that people who have access to financial advice have better outcomes, have, you know, better, they sleep better at night, right? Like there's all sorts of benefits. Um, But actually the amount of work that's being required of advisors means that we're limiting access to this incredibly valuable service. I think the other, I mean, I mentioned consumer duty. I think that it's a big challenge at the moment just because the mm. deadline's looming. Um, and I think cost um, and cost pressure, so the, the cost of delivering advice and then also the questions about how do you drive down cost of the whole solution because it's never just advice. Clients think of the whole package, but the advisors managing all the costs that make up that whole package of, of the what the client's receiving. Mm, yeah, definitely. I was going to say on consumer duty, actually, what? how do you think financial advisors are responding to that? Do you think the majority are prepared? What are you sort of seeing? So I think, I think, I mean, most are working towards it. Some are doing, you know, a huge root and branch review of everything that they do and, and using this as an opportunity to really rethink their processes and client segmentation and what they deliver to clients. Most advisors I talk to say, you were already doing most of this stuff, but it's gathering the evidence. Now, Mm. what you measure, you manage, right? So so if you're quantifying some of these things and you're recognizing that there's gaps in what you're measuring and quantifying, then um, then that that might lead to change. So I, I definitely think that consumer duty will lead to some positive change. I just hope it's commensurate with the increased resource that it's requiring within firms. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's interesting what well, you're saying. Right. Sorry, go on, Julian. And I was just going to say, I'll come back to the broader piece on challenges, but if you stick with consumer duty for a minute, we've just had our advisor survey, um, which we announced um, this week. And um, we did, uh, I mean, it wouldn't be a survey at the moment without asking about consumer duty. And um, so, you know, what we see, as Heather said, is, you know, many advisors are, are still on that journey in terms of preparing for, for it. So, the numbers that we got was that about 77% of advisors said we're we're in progress and um, but we should be ready by the end of July. Sadly, four percent haven't yet started. So um wow, they, they've not they've not got much time left, right? Um and 19% said that they were fully prepared. But of course, what does fully prepared look like? I think is a question post-July. Um, you know, once we all start to see what, what's coming out and we see possibly examples of good and poor practice what does that look like 
But we also asked about what was the most difficult um, outcome to just to, to prepare for. It's probably no surprise that um, the, the fair value outcome was the one that advisors found the most difficult to work through. And, um, and I think what was interesting about that is we also asked about um, did they feel that that might have a pressure on ongoing charging models and 60% nearly said that, that that would be the case. So I think there's some interesting data that we've got in terms of consumer duty. Um, I, th I think for me, one of the statistics that was, was probably really interesting, maybe back to Heather's point about we, we absolutely hope that this isn't a, a tick box exercise and then actually, you know, it's a, it's a real opportunity, isn't it, to sit back and look at how we work with consumers and, and, and the I always believe we could do better, right? No matter how good we are. Mm. Um, but um, only twenty-five percent of advisors said that they would have a, you know, an above-medium impact on their business. So I just thought that that's quite interesting. That you know, majority of advisors do not think or it feels like it won't necessarily have an impact on their business. And you kind of think, well, that's interesting because having gone through the fair value assessments already as a manufacturer of advisor models, we've already seen, we've already made changes. It's already had impact on, on the way that, that we review our models, that we look at our service and, and because that's what this is all about. So um, I think it's be really interesting to see kind of how this one plays out. But but back to the broader piece, you know, you know, Heather mentioned challenges, completely agree obviously with um with all of these challenges. And um, we ask advisors every year in our annual main survey and they always say that you know the key challenges are regulation, succession planning always figures really high. And interestingly, they often talk about um or they used to finding new clients. And I think that's really shifting because of exactly what Heather was saying in terms of all this work that they have to do is um and it's all focusing really on existing clients. Um, and most of the advisors that, that I meet, you know, they have more almost like more clients than they can cope with. You know, we know that there's an advice gap in a, a number of different ways. It's just not enough advisors to to give advice to people that that really need it. So I think there's some huge challenges for advisors. Obviously, you know, we can talk separately, but markets have been challenging over the last few years. Mm -hmm. um, I've lots of bouts, if I could call them that, of volatility. You know, COVID, the Russia-Ukraine situation, you know, the mortgage situation in terms of the mini budget. There's just a whole lot of stuff going on there. Um, and advisors, what came through strongly in the survey as well, and you mentioned it, was cash. So, you know, clients are seeing um, quite attractive cash rates. So mm -hmm. should I put money in cash rather than investing? And I think, and actually a lot of this plays back into the value of advice, isn't it? It's about having these great conversations with clients about not looking necessarily at short-term interest rates, but thinking about staying invested for the long term to meet your financial planning requirements. Yeah, definitely. I always, I find that really um, interesting. Before I joined Money Marketing, um, I have I say this a lot, but I didn't even consider sort of investment as a or investing as a, a thing I should do because I just thought, well, I'm fairly short termist and I'm not very good at leaving money in in a place for a long time. And I just can't see that far ahead. Like I, I don't I don't didn't consider the sort of it would actually go up over the long term, even if it was very volatile in the short term. So, no, it's a really interesting point. And I get also I never really considered getting any kind of financial advice or guidance. So I think it's that yeah, I was talking to someone the other day 
who was saying there's there's probably a large portion of people who want advice but don't really know how to access it but there's probably an even larger portion of people who don't even sort of consider seeking advice or or thinking they need it or or even some kind of guidance because maybe they don't think they have enough money or they think oh I can just put it into this fund because my friend told me it was really good so yeah that's definitely an interesting um area I I don't know about Heather I don't know about Heather's view but what I really welcome actually is I'm seeing this rise in financial coaching Mm. and I think possibly maybe a stepping stone to to moving towards advice you know how can we actually encourage young people to think about investing just to your point and obviously lovely young people like you've got lots of years before you hit pension age and we've really got to make sure that they are thinking about where they're investing that money then yeah and understanding you know about taking risk over the long term, as opposed to, you know, we get asked all the time, should I just invest in cash at the moment? I guess the answer is, it depends. You know, if, if I've just got some money that I know I need next year because I might need it for a deposit for a house, for example, then maybe that's the right thing to do, you know, to have it easy access, you get whatever percentage, but actually, You've got to really under you know all the evidence proves that the that's that long term investing when you consider inflation as well is is you know is you is a better option so or usually a better option I'm saying not a financial planner but it's about then getting advice around all of that mm, definitely can I come back to something that um that Julian said around um advisors feeling pressure around ongoing charges I find this yeah, really really interesting because um. We've done quite a bit of work with consumers over the last year um, around how they define value of advice and and um, views on different charging models. And what we found overwhelmingly was that consumers like asset-based charges and they want an ongoing service. They don't want to pay for time. They don't want to feel that they're on the clock. I think I'm a huge advocate of time tracking within advice firms, but that's not about reporting to the client on a, you know, an annual or monthly or whatever basis, how the time, you know, what's being done and and charging based on that. But but for clients, they really want to feel someone's on top of it so that if they see on the news that markets have dropped whatever percent, they're like, I don't need to worry about it because someone's on it. Whereas if they're on the clock, they feel that they then have to email their financial advisor to say, what are you doing about this? Because they only get a service when they request it. And Mm -hmm. I think there's a real disconnect in terms of the, there does seem to be a focus, the regulator, on understanding whether ongoing charges are in the customer's best interest. But I think it's really understanding, well, what is that value of advice? What is the customer's interest? Because it's not about the product, right? It's about the overall plan and am I going to be okay? So that's a that's a real disconnect. And um and and I hope we can get onto it, but and, and I can do it now if you want. But I, but the um, as part of that fair value assessment, I think it's really helpful for advisors to understand what the benchmarks are for charges. So we've got from a survey we we did last summer, um, we've, it's freely available on our website. But the average cost of ongoing charges, and it's sixty seven basis points overall, is the as the average cost of ongoing advice. Higher in London, lower in some of the regions, but actually mm-hmm. the overall package that we were talking about before is lower in London than some other places because there's obviously different levers to pull around increasing use of passive and lower platform charges and so on. So the average overall cost clients are paying on an ongoing basis is 168 basis points. 
And I think, but I think that, that, you know, thinking about what model is right for the customer is just really important not to be pushed by these really fantastic conversations around fixed fee models and what's the cleanest model, what's the best way, and really think about what does your customer want? Don't feel pressure from what you hear in the, you know, if that, you know, some commentators or whoever talking about what does my customer value from me? What side of charging model are they comfortable with and aligning to that? And it may not be what we see in our surveys. It might be different for your customer set, but having that optionality and really understanding what your customers want is where I would start. Of course, as a market researcher, I'm always talking about the voice of the customer. Mm, yeah, definitely. Heather, do you know, I, I absolutely completely agree because actually when we look at the wording of the question, it was asking about putting pressure on ongoing charging models. What it didn't ask or didn't say was the actual... So there's two things here, isn't it? There's the, the model of ongoing as opposed to fixed. And then there's the amount that you charge. And, the, and they are two, they're, they're two different things. But I completely agree in terms of if you have an ongoing model, then the advisor has an ongoing duty to work with you, don't they? All the time, you know, monitoring your portfolios, making sure that you're up to speed with everything that's going on. And um, the other way around puts the requirement for advice in the hands of the customer who has to say, I need to phone my advisor because I think I might need advice on this. Yeah. And that's a very different model, I think. And one of the areas that we looked at in terms of the surveys, we felt there were a number of pointers from the survey where advisors really do demonstrate the benefit of that ongoing advice. So things like, well, things like the cash deposit situation. Also, a lot of clients, we always ask clients, are you bullish or bearish? Or what do you think the sentiment is of clients? And and it was interesting because what we saw was a huge increase in the number that said neutral. I think, you know, something like 44% of advisors think clients were neutral. Yeah, well, why is that? You know, it's because of what's been going on. So they, they need an advisor on an ongoing basis to navigate them you know, through what's happening in markets. But another interesting point, and we'll come on to cost of living crisis, but they were talking about the number of, advice of clients that were adjusting their plans. Um, and one of the reasons for this was helping the wider family. And this is then all about, well, how do we make sure that that money is passed on correctly? Is it a gift, a loan? And, um, you know, is it the bank of mum and dad stepping in again in terms of helping people on the property ladder? And this is absolutely where people need advice as to how to do that effectively, rather than just, you know, I'm, I'm only paying the advisor for when I think I need them. So I'll just do what I think is the right thing. So I just think there's lots in, in that whole ongoing piece that's still to be you know thought through in terms of the benefits of having an ongoing. It's not about an ongoing charging model. It's about an ongoing service model. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's really interesting. That sort of it's a similar point, I think, because um, the client might not necessarily know that they need advice on a specific thing. So it kind of is, it should be on the advisor to say, well, this has happened, so you should do this. Um, but as you say, if they're not paying for ongoing advice, then it's it's probably impossible for the advisor to do that. Yeah, I mean, a simple example could be the recent proposed changes in pensions Yeah, in terms of lifting the um the, the the limits now that relies on people reading reading the press knowing that there's maybe a change and maybe there's an opportunity for them it, you know an advisor would normally write to clients and say you know you've reached your lifetime limit but, the, but the, the, there are potential changes so let's have a conversation about it yeah yeah so it's a great pull 
things changing that you know not every client is aware of what happens you know, we're on it all the time because we, we read all your publications all the time you know we know what's happening we read what comes out from the FCA but you know average clients don't do that do they they're living their lives yeah exactly I think I, I get very excited about the budget and then I sort of mention it to one of my friends and they're like the what <laughs> <laughs> I say excited I mean from a work perspective obviously <laughs> obviously obviously <laughs> But yeah, no. Um, I did just um when you were I can't even remember when it was, I think it was the first thing you said, Heather, when you said about um what you measure you can manage. I just thought um that was really interesting because it just made me think of um something I heard which was on diversity and how much companies sort of measure um like the diversity, like the diversity within their boards or within their companies. Um and I think maybe the split of men and women is getting slightly better, although it's, I think there's still a long way to go in the sector. Um, but I know that the split of different ethnicities is is much sort of lower down the food chain, as it were, because I don't think companies measure it as much. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on, both of your thoughts on diversity within the sector and whether you think it's going in the right direction and sort of how much more you think there is to do. Yeah, I think it's um, it's a really, really interesting challenge that because um, because you're right, it is harder to measure ethnicity um, in um, in in sort of blunt ways, whereas you can measure gender, you can measure pay, but what you can't always capture in that in that pay discussion is is if people are working, you know, shared roles or if they're working four days a week or three days a week or whatever. So there's some, there's even challenges within, within the data that's available. I think in terms of, of whether we're making progress, the, the short answer is, is yes. And I, and where we see it is when we look at our, um, when we look at the data split by age cohort, um, when we look at the number of women working in financial advice firms um, who are younger across all roles, it's a much higher representation of women in those businesses who are younger than than older. Now, of course, there's in a lot of businesses, what we see is that women will drop out um, of the workforce. We sort of lose them um, at a certain point, whether they have children or not. It, it, it seems to be independent of that. So it can't just be chalked up to or they have women, they take time off. Um, so, so whether we'll continue to see that come through you know, remains to be seen. But the really encouraging signs is is the the number of women working within financial advice firms is higher when we look at um, at younger age groups. Um, and we see it across all roles. So it's not just that they're in ops and admin roles. It's across mm. even when we just look at financial advisors. Um, it was interesting. I mentioned that school talk I did yesterday and I asked at the end whether people had a positive view of financial advice and if it's a career that they would consider. And um, and they all said, except for one, said yeah. And it was, you know, would you consider it or if a friend of yours said they were looking to do that? Because obviously there's going to be people who, you know, aren't interested in it at all. But if a friend said they were looking at that as a career, would you think that was a, you know, a good idea? And and they all said yes, except for one. Um, so so I think that perception with younger people, hopefully, hopefully is changing from that sample of 20 I was speaking to yesterday, <laughs> doing my job to recruit new financial advisors. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I would agree with Heather. I, th- I think we're moving in the right direction. I think we've got to keep measuring it, to your point, Lois, and right across different 
elements of diversity, if I could call it that. You know, I, I'm a big fan also of diversity of thought and background. Um, and, and I think that's sometimes an area that we don't focus enough on. Um, and, and that's something that we've still got to change. And I, and I think Heather made a point on age cohorts that I also think is interesting. I see lots of diversity at the um, at the younger age groups. So if I look at, at Schroeder's, for example, I see lots of young people joining our business, which is great, um, with significant diversity across, uh, across that group. But how do we make sure that we retain that? Um, and I, I think that might be a generational shift. I might be wrong, but it's just going to take time, you know, particularly if you look at senior positions. And I'm not just, you know, it's not just about women. It's also, you know, ethnic diversity at senior positions as well. Um, and, and without role models in our, you know, we've got to make sure there are enough role models and enough um so that, that people genuinely believe that they can join our industry and stay in our industry and progress through our industry. And I had made a good point about women. You know, we, we we do still have, I think, this challenge of women dropping out of our industry. Um, and, we, and we need to probably explore that in a bit more detail as to why that happens and how we can retain. But, but actually, on the positive there, you've got to think about we are a much more flexible industry than we ever were before in terms of working patterns now i'm not saying that women just drop out because they look after children women drop out for many reasons but i mean often that's a primary reason uh, or they come back part-time and things change um but obviously with the advent you know covid was a dreadful time but it did give us um, sadly some benefits like working remotely and being a lot lot more flexible in terms of policies that large organizations like mine introduced so you've got to welcome that and you've got to welcome the fact that technology can really enable us potentially in this area to be you know to be more diverse right across right across the age groups yeah definitely i'm glad you mentioned technology because it was what i was going to come on to next <laughs> um more sort of generally than just um, being able to work remotely and stuff how do you see a sort of evolution of technology do you think it's going to be a help or a hindrance to advisors very general question but better be a help if it's not a help (laughs) what the hell are we doing (laughs) yeah we'll just give up now if it's not i don't know some some sort of i think consider it a hindrance to like oh we have to learn all this new technology and but, um, yeah. There's definitely a learning curve. I think um, so. I'm I'm of, uh, yeah. I'm hugely optimistic about the opportunities for technology to um, to automate some of the repetitive tasks that don't add value to client relationships, and we've already seen that happen in a lot of places. I think that thinking about the the you know the the there's been a lot of talk about chat GPT and so on, but, but, but using generative AI in future as a co-pilot to, um, to, to generate a first draft, um, I think is, is really exciting. So, um, you know, I have a colleague who, who hates sending, he he really struggles to write an email. Uh, He's very bright, very articulate, but really struggles to write an email. And so, you know, he's using chat GPT now to do a first draft of emails. And um, I use it for, desk research when we need to find things. Um, so we just do a report on consolidation and aggregation. And we used ChatGPT to help us with um, some of the desk 
risk research and and how that evolves who knows you know if you think about how we used youtube at the beginning it was to watch funny cat videos now i've been mm-hmm. watching my cat run around chase a fly around my room yeah, i can see that <laughs> <laughs> so you know hilarious love funny cat videos but actually you know i use youtube to learn um to you know share private videos to i use it for business i use it in private videos as in like i send videos of the kids to my parents nothing nothing <laughs> <laughs> more sinister than that um but you know but but how we use that medium has changed fundamentally and so we just don't know how it's going to be used Um, but I'm hugely optimistic it has enormous potential to bring down cost to improve access um, to mean that advisors can really spend time on the things that clients value which is around helping them to figure out what they need what they need to do to get there because you know even that basic question of what is your net income most people can't answer that, right? And but do you really need a financial advisor to to spend time figuring that out? Probably not, right? Um, so so you don't need the people to know how to answer that question to be able to figure out basic financial planning. It's not just that question, but but that's an example of one. So huge potential. Um, I would love to see improvements. I mean, my personal bugbear is I think that there's a lot of pressure on, this is just a personal thing, there's a lot of pressure on platforms to improve. There's definitely room for platforms to improve their service. But when we do surveys of tech where the real frustration exists is around the back office. And so improving data availability um, and will improve satisfaction with the CRM that can support the back office within an advice business, because that's the root of that concern. Um, So there's loads of innovation happening with platforms, but actually it's that fundamental, how do I get data out so that I can do have more meaningful conversations with my clients? and make that reporting to the regulator easier. Back to our original point about the amount of client work that's being done. If we can speed that up, that would be fantastic. But that requires a bit more of an open approach to data, which I think we're getting there. Well, the the good news as well is that that many advisors share our enthusiasm about AI and the opportunities of ChatGPT or or technologies such as that. So we asked in the survey, you know, did they think it was an opportunity or a threat to their business? Um, and 57% of advisors said, we see this as an opportunity. So that's got to be a good thing. Right? We're all you know, waking up to the possibilities. I think to Heather's point, you know, it's still early days. I don't know about you. The first time I heard about ChatGPT was at Christmas time when, um, when our group CEO mentioned that he'd been, uh, Peter Harrison mentioned he'd been, and using ChatGPT recently, and I'm thinking, I don't know what that is. I better get, get you know, better find out and get in there. Um, so you know, it, it's only been what six months or so. That's so. Uh, whilst the pace of change, right, of anything in our lives is 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 so much faster than it ever was, particularly around technology. We're, we're kind of six months down the line with this, so it's too early to tell. But I think, you know, 57% of advisors thinking it's an opportunity has got has got to be a good thing. And we also asked how soon they might be incorporating it within their advice process in some ways. So back to Heather's point, you know, is the starting point things like suitability reports and, and just making that whole process with a client um, you know, easier, um, quicker, um, hopefully and potentially maybe even cheaper. So um, you know, there's got to be time, cost and risk advantages to this. But um 
So 51% advisors said that they would be in the anticipated implementing some of this within the next five years. And actually of that 8% was in the next year. So there, there just seems to be a huge focus on this. And I just think it's got to be, we've got to look on it we, we, as a force for good. We hear all the we hear all the challenges, um, but that's good. We've spotted them. So let's let's try and manage them. And let's think about some of the opportunities that this could deliver. And again, I think it's back to that message on how could we use this to help with the advice gap? You know, how could we use this to develop a great advice, automated advice solutions of some description, whether that be hybrid or otherwise, to engage young people to start to think about investing? Yeah, so. definitely. No, really good point. Um, yeah, it's interesting when you sort of look at chat GPT as it is now. Um, it's fairly basic as I've I've only used it as well, Heather, for research purposes and things just to sort of baseline or to write a skeleton of something that I'm then going to obviously massively expand on. Um, it's not very creative in its writing, but at the same time, if you think about how quickly the iPhone has progressed. So I think the first one came out in something like 2007, the iPhone first generation, which apparently just one of them, which was still sealed in its package, just sold for tens of thousands of pounds, which I thought was quite wow. interesting. <laughs> um, Actually, it's here. We, we've launched our own version of ChatGPT um, called Genie. And, oh, yeah. um, and that's great because that's, I think it's based on the same technology, but we've worked with developers. But what that's doing is um, we're all being encouraged to try and use it. And to think, so if you think about the power of a group such as ours and the number of people that are trying to think, how can I use this and how can I share my experiences of using it? And also for all asking it um, about information related to the industry and related to our roles, then it's going to learn about what, how we want to use it and how we think we could use it as a force of good. So, um, so I just think there's some really great opportunities with some of this stuff. There's huge opportunities, but it's probably worth mentioning the the potential downside because the the you know the the effort required for a customer to submit a claim um, is drops to zero, right? So the cost of content drops to zero. The opportunities to create marketing content, summary of a suitability letter, all that stuff, absolutely fantastic. But there's a potential for a a massive claims industry to develop because the cost of just submitting claims also goes to zero or next mm-hmm. to zero. Um, so there's there's definitely some risks and and that's why there's lots of talk about how do we regulate, how do we, you know, how do we how do we deal with how do we deal with some of the downsides of this? And it's not that claims in some cases aren't justified, um, but you know, the volume mm-hmm. can yeah. go up. Yeah, definitely. And also the fact that um it does like sometimes what's it called hallucinations where it just makes stuff up yeah. i was reading about it this morning um i think there was a some um law case that my colleague kim was telling me about in the us where the lawyer had just used chat gpt to research something and and they just i think i, I don't know the exact details but chat gpt had basically just made up an entire case that didn't exist and instead of checking it yeah. the lawyer just put it to the judge or whatever and yeah it, it doesn't sound very good so i think it's very important to <laughs> that it's just sort of used as a minimum and not <laughs> check the homework yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um yeah no it's i i love the whole technology thing i really like reading about ai and writing about it and i'm just going to give a really quick plug to our um, money marketing interactive london in october which launched last week 
when this podcast comes out. It launched last week. Um, so if you're interested, we're going to be talking about AI and other forms of technology quite extensively. So do head to the website and sign up to that or look out for the emails. Um, so I just wanted to ask you penultimately both, um, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in the industry since you joined? Um, should we go Gillian first this time? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously we've talked a lot about technology and that's got to just be a massive change. You know, when I, this is when I yeah. sound like a dinosaur, but, you know, when I joined, there weren't mobile phones, there wasn't email, we didn't have laptops and that. Kind of, so technology has been, been a huge driver for change. But but I also think, you know, if I look back over the many years, we've actually become far more professional as an industry, I think. Um, you know, I think when it was probably a little bit of the Wild West back in the 80s when I joined the industry you think about the number of people there were giving advice or or selling and I think we've absolutely moved much we've absolutely moved away from selling to giving advice and 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 financial planning and that's got to be a good thing because it's about you know it's it's back to putting the client at the center of everything that we do um, and how can we make sure that, that what we deliver for them is a long-term financial plan that meets their objectives so so I think for me um, you know, professionalism has got to be a, a key point in terms of how we work with clients and what we do and, and how we we have to consider that that's why we exist, isn't it? So for me, I think there's much more focus on clients. Mm. And Heather, what about you? So, yeah, I agree with um, professionalising um, of the industry. I mean, people talk about like, oh, remember the days we used to go on these, you know, week long trips to wherever. And I was like, well, I never had that because I joined this industry. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I <laughs> too late, too. whatever. Um, but, um, but that's that's definitely changed. And um, I think I think a huge shift is that is that the choice of the product that's recommended to the client, the importance of price to that decision is become is become much more prevalent. And um, so we've continued, I mean, the, the implication of that is, of course, cost pressure on platforms where, I mean, you look at Hargreaves, I think it's 45 basis points is their headline rate. Um, and that's in a D2C environment where the customer has no buying power to exert. They don't know necessarily they can negotiate that. Advisors have always negotiated on behalf of their customers, but the degree to which they're pushing down price um, is significant. Um, and we, I mean, we'll, we're publishing a report on MPS. It will have just gone out by the time this podcast will come out and you'll be able to read about it on money marketing um, in a fantastic piece. I'm sure Lois will be writing. Um, <laughs> and um, but we see a direct correlation between the DFMs that are seeing growth in assets and the price that they charge for the MPS. And so price has become a really important driver, not the only driver, because, of course, there's, you know, value isn't just about price. But in that B2B environment, um, advisors are really, really pushing on price to make sure that they're getting a good value in terms of cost and in terms of what's delivered to customers. Um, so that's fantastic. And Schroeder. Um, it will be announced the day before I think this podcast comes out. We'll have touched <laughs> up one spot in the ranking. So congratulations, Julian. Well done. <laughs> that's <laughs> change. But I mean, there's, two, there's 216 DFMs offering MPS oh on platform. Um, and we don't even think we've got the full universe counted. That was across 22 platforms that we looked. It's an enormous amount of choice. Um, and um, But those yeah. firms offering that real professional service, 
good customer outcomes at a reasonable cost are the ones that are that are winning. I think another really big change that we're seeing and you know where it goes is still unknown, but is consolidation. So there's a lot of PE activity um, in platforms, in wealth management firms, and in financial advice. And, and, you know, the FCA figures are three years out of date. And I think a lot of people don't appreciate this, that when you look at the FCA data from the RMAR filings, um, that the latest data that it made available is a year and a half old. It'll be out sometime in the next month, hopefully, the update for the end of 2022. But when you look at the RMAR data, it's at least a year and a half out of date because that's when the FCA, but it also takes about three years from when a firm and advice firms are acquired until they drop off the FCA. FCA's register. And so we won't see for four years what happened now, right? So when people say we're not seeing a shrinking in number of advice firms, that data doesn't tell us that story because it's just not up to date enough. So um, we're hearing from DFMs, from platforms, that the a number of, of advice firms they see being acquired and the assets being moved across um, quite quickly to different solutions um, is is at a significant pace. And our work on consolidation and aggregation suggests that that pace is picked up and it continues to pick up, even if the price of money to to put into these things has gone up because a lot of times that capital was allocated before interest rates moved. Um, So that's, I think, another really big question about what does that look like? We'll always see this thriving, small, directly authorized advice market, um, but but how big will that be? Will the regulator put pressure on that? We're hearing some rumors that it, you know, advisors trying to set up on a directly authorized basis are finding it tougher um, with mm-hmm. the regulator to get the permissions. So that that could represent a significant change, but not necessarily a bad one. Um, and I can tell you about pubs if you want to know why, but that we might have to save that because we've been on too long. <laughs> oh no, I'd like I to hear, please. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I found that a huge amount of PE investment. This is, I think, it's such a great analogy. So there was um, about a decade ago, there was a huge amount of PE investment in pubs in the UK, and there was all this panic that pubs were going to lose their local flavour. That you wouldn't have, you know, that, that it's such an important place for communities to congregate. But what we found was central buying power, right? So it pushes down the the, the price that they're paying for the products that they sell. Um, centralized systems, so HR systems policies, all of that is centralized. But the but the local flavor of how that pub looks and feels in its neighborhood hasn't largely hasn't changed. Um, and so if you think about how that might work in the financial advice market, it doesn't have to mean that the service delivered to the customer in that local pub or that local advice business has to change. You can still have that very local feel, that local connection to a community, but you can have central decision-making, you can have central processes, central frameworks. Um, And so PE investment, I don't think, means that you see this homogenization and rapid increase in price. I think it's a a different model. Mm, Definitely, if done Mm. right as well. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. No, that's really interesting. I used to write for a um, food and drink magazine, so I'm always very interested to hear about pubs. Well, just personally as well, to be honest. Um, I was going to say, when you were talking about the um, data being four years out of date, it was just making me think of um, when you look at a star and it's you're looking at it years and years in the past because of the speed of light. 
sorry, it's just yeah. a complete tangent, but just a good analogy. No, you're right. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if we had a, a crystal ball and we could see, we could look, look ahead to see what the future looks like. But I think your point on choice, actually, Heather, was really interesting. If you think back, you know, one of the questions you asked us is about change. Obviously, you know, when I first started my career, it was with profits, was the, you know, the name of the game in town. And then we've moved to, you know, a huge significant number of opportunities in terms of funds and then models and it's 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 a it's, it's tough isn't it in terms of what's out there and um, how do you do the right due diligence on different types of propositions it's all time consuming um and and again you know that's back to the very original point that, that was made in terms of some of the challenges that advisors are facing and just the amount of work that they have to do that takes away from the time in front of the client mm, definitely it's really interesting. I mean, we could carry on talking about it for hours, but we, we'd probably better start wrapping up. So just um, <laughs> my final question um, for, your, for you both. I always ask my podcast interviewees, um, what one piece of advice would you give to someone looking to start a career in financial advice or financial services more generally? You'd prefer. I'm happy to start if you want. So um, this is based on a question I got from one of those um, uh, fifteen-year-olds yesterday that I was I was talking to, and it was um, it was about negotiation. And so um, so this is uh, you know whether it's financial advice or whatever. Um, but I think I think a lot of people are nervous about how they don't know how to approach negotiation early in their career. And, um, and as a, as you know, somebody who's had experience managing, what I would say is be really clear about what you want and present evidence. So, um, so if you want progression early on in your career, tell your manager, what is the role that you would want? What is the pay that you would want? And don't, don't hold them over a barrel to say, I'm going to leave if I don't get this in three months, but make it really clear what you want and set out a path for how you're going to get there. Um, so, you know, meet with recruiters, find out what you're worth, find out what kind of role you'd be eligible for in another company, um, and then talk to your manager about what you want and how you can get there, because it makes it much easier for managers to figure out how to support their staff if they know what they want. Um, but it's a really, really hard skill to do because it's uncomfortable to talk about money. But if you can do it from a, a position of evidence and understanding, then it's it's a more comfortable conversation. Mm, definitely a really good piece of advice. Um, Gillian. Yeah, well, for me, first up, I would say great decision, right? Um, because and but but actually, be open minded about what financial services is all about. If you think about the broad spectrum of roles that are available, you know, if you look at Heather and I, do you know very different roles? And um, you've got all of these roles that are now appearing as a result of the potential of technology. You've got open banking, open finance. So, don't. Don't be narrow-minded in terms of your understanding of what this industry can offer you as a career, um, and and also I guess my my big my, my key advice always for somebody joining is, you know, just get networking as quickly as possible. You know, look at people that can mentor and help you along the way because what you will find is there are people all over our industry that are more than happy to spend time with young people, helping them on their career journey and helping them to understand that it doesn't go in a straight line, you know, but and, and take take all the opportunities that are available because, you know, you know, I've been here a long time. So certainly it's, uh, you know, I've had a lot of fun along the way as well. And, um, you know, it's a great industry to be part of, but just be open-minded about what's, you know, what, what it can offer you. Definitely. 
sage advice from you both for, for more than just financial services, I think. <laughs> all careers I think it relates to um, great well thank you both so much for spending time with me today I really really enjoyed chatting to you I think it's been really interesting great thank you so much Lois great. loved it thank you very much yeah Thank you for listening to In Conversation With. We do hope that you enjoyed it. Please do keep up to date with all our new releases via Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date with all our new content published on the Money Marketing website, as well as our print edition, Money Marketing Magazine. So make sure to subscribe. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. See you next time.